Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this episode, I speak with a dear friend and colleague, John Halstead. John is the author of one of the most amazing little books, Another End of the World is Possible. And in this 52-minute conversation that was only recorded a month before coronavirus really took off here in the United States, recorded in February of 2020, John has written several profound posts on coronavirus since this was recorded. And the title that we've given this is Love at the End of Our World. It begins with two previews. Here's the first preview. How do you talk about it? Well, uh, I, I like post-doom. I liked using deep adaptation when I talk about, write about it. But uh, in the family, I kind of tongue-in-cheek say the end of the world right and it sounds very dramatic um and i keep thinking i need to stop saying that and then i but the more i think about it i think you know that is what i mean it's it's not the end of the planet it's not the end of nature but in the sense that you know we have a world we make a world with uh, our communities and our ideas and our you know we make an order out of our chaos of our experience and that i think is what's coming to an end yeah you know um uh, when people have really traumatic experiences or like the death of a loved one, sometimes we say their world came to an end, you know, like that, that, that centering, uh, organizing factor or person in their life. Um, and, and, but this is happening not on an individual level. I mean, it's happening to individuals, but it's, it's happening on a collective scale now, you know, a global scale now. So we're talking about an end of our world. Here's the second preview. I'm rediscovering my love of where I, the, the land where I live, the place yeah. where I live. Yeah. I'm, I'm cherishing my relationships in a whole, at a whole new level. Yeah. And the, the, I realized the despair, the, the, the depression, it's not a product of facing the truth. It's a product of the denial. Right? Yes. By, by, by holding on to this hope that we are something other than, biological animals that are finite you know holding on to some dream of infinite progress that actually is what creates the despair and the depression and it's when you're on the other side of it that i understand i could not have i would have said the same thing but for people who are on this side of that despair and i'm you know i'm sure i'm going to cycle through periods of depression still but but on the other side of that awareness is actually a more profound and, and more real love for the world and for the people that we share it with. It really is. The conversation begins. 
John, it's a delight to have you as part of this series because as you know, we talked a couple weeks ago that I'm just gaga about your book, Another End of the World is Possible. Thanks. And um, for people who aren't familiar with you uh, and haven't read your book, haven't read your blog, help us get you, like, like uh, who you are, what you're committed to, what you're known for or whatever. Okay. Um, well, I, I often start by telling people where I live uh, because it's significant for um, what's, how things have developed for me. I, I live in Northwest Indiana, which is this odd place, really unique place. We moved here because I, wanted, I was, had a job offer and I had no idea what I was moving into. But um, we are right at the southern tip of Lake Michigan, uh, which is close to Chicago. And the area is uh, on the southern shore of Lake Michigan is one of the most ecologically diverse areas of the country. It's got dunes and forest and prairie and uh, swamps. And if you stand on the beach and you look to your right, you see a coal-fired power plant. And then if you look to your left, you see this steel mill that's the largest producer of uh, air pollution in our area. And then just beyond that is the BP refinery that is the largest um, tar sands refinery, refining uh, tar sands from Alberta, Canada, in the country. And then there's a beautiful Chicago skyline a little bit further down. So it's this real contrast between uh, hideous industrial civilization and beautiful um, wild nature, or what's, what's semi-wild. So uh, I got involved in activism uh, environmental activism probably not too long ago, it was about five years ago. And um, I started, well, it was a little bit before this, but the, the, big, the big event for me was uh, the Break Free campaign that was put on by 350.org. They were organizing 20 direct actions or 20 uh, actions involving civil disobedience around the world, all within like the, a week of each other. And one of them happened to be at the BP tar sands refinery that was just north of where I live. I really didn't know uh, much before this uh, where I was living and how significant this juncture was because a lot of the oil for the country gets from, from Canada gets piped through this area. Mm. And uh, I got arrested uh, as part of that and that kind of launched me into environmental activism. We organized a chapter 350 in Indiana. And before this, you know, I'd been... Um, I'm a self-identified Unitarian Universalist, but I'm also a pagan. And I had, a little bit before this, kind of come to the conclusion that, um, well, one of the reasons I got into paganism was an interest in uh, a religion that I thought would have a, a uh, an ecologically centered attitude. And I was kind of frustrated that I didn't see a lot of actual activism among pagans. And, and, and I just want to note that you are... Uh naturalistic pagan or or humanistic pagan or you know ecological pagan but it's it's uh you and john host are two of the main voices as i see it um for a science-based um, right. interpretation of neo-paganism yeah and that and that was kind of that was another reason why i kind of ended up butting heads with a lot of pagans because i tend to I have a more um natural as you said naturalistic not supernaturalistic orientation toward religion, uh, which makes me fit in well with you Unitarian Universalists. Um, uh, but anyway, so 
I was looking. I was looking for a, a more grounded, more um, a spirituality more connected to the earth, and that kind of led me to activism. And uh, one of my interests is is really about tying or connecting spirituality and activism, and you know, finding the meeting ground there. So, uh, and then eventually, uh, through you know, trying to save the world, uh, <laughs> I eventually came to uh, the kind of a post-doom, as you're calling it, the post-doom orientation where, um, you know, I, I went through a period where I was wrestling with, um, you know, real actual despair and depression and kind of pushed through to the other side, I think, I'm hoping. Um, and now I'm, I'm feeling out this area that's kind of beyond hope and despair. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. what the that's what the book is about yes yeah it's a, it's a quick read um anybody listening to this it's under 100 pages i think it's like 88 pages or something like that and it's just an absolutely fabulous read because it's what four or five posts that you had done rather lengthy and put them together in a book form and um as i shared with you in a previous conversation there were a few dozen times in the course of reading it that i had the thought that's that's like exactly how i'd language it or, you know except i experienced you as a better writer than me fortunately i'm married <laughs> to a world class editor so my writing right. appears to be better than it actually is but um yeah. well and i thought i was discovering this on my own and 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 then i i fortunately uh, partly through you and through other people discovered there's a more and more people that are coming to this place and talking about it and creating communities around it. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Well, that leads me to want to ask you, uh, uh, you've got, you've got a family, you know, so you, you, you've right. got, uh, uh, skin in the game, as they say. Um, um, it's been, and I don't have any answers for this, but it has been challenging. I have, I have a, a 21 year old son and a 17 year old daughter. And they are just starting to move out into the world and begin their, in, you know, they're on, the, they're on the verge of independence, some level of independence. And they're, they're more clear-eyed about these issues than I am. I mean, I've, uh, my daughter was telling me about a conversation she was having with a friend the other day about, and they were talking about, like, where do you want to be? Um, when you are, you know, such and such age, and I can't remember what it was. And her friend, uh, who incidentally is Mormon, um, turned to her and said, well, that's very optimistic of you to think that the world's going to be around in 50 years. And, you know, that, to, what does that do to a teenager to live with that, that awareness, yes. you know? And, and, and we're talking about, um, you know, I, I think, even even youth who aren't completely you know immersed in in what we're talking about here are on some level they're they're hearing about climate change they're hearing about um, you know catastrophic news and to live with that awareness I I'm surprised that you know we're we're not all in you know, yeah, I, I think permanent the therapy. I'm just, yeah, wow. I, exactly. I think we're in the early stages of the greatest mental health crisis in human history. And it's a it will be a global phenomenon. Different cultures will deal with it differently. But one of the things I loved about your book, um, Another End of the World is Possible, is you 
really featured in a way that deserves to be featured, or at least this is my interpretation of it, was that truly embracing your own mortality and our species mortality is perhaps the, the best antidote to despair and depress long-term depression. I mean, obviously feeling grief, if you have a heart of compassion, you're going to feel grief. That's healthy. That's normal. That's natural. That, as Joanna Macy often says, that helps us know that we love because we wouldn't be feeling grief if we didn't love. And exactly. it also helps us know how profoundly interrelated and interconnected we are with other life forms. And so grief's a good thing. I don't ever want to be away, you know, beyond that. But right. the kind of debilitating despair and depression and overwhelm and, you know, um, if you truly embrace that you're going to die, I'm going to die, and that we're probably going to die and our kids and grandkids are probably going to die a lot sooner than they would have, say, 50 or 100 years ago. So I, I found your book so like where I, I was like the amen choir uh, or chorus was when you really regularly came back to the embrace of mortality right. um, as, as vital for uh, helping to maintain some sense of being sane, sober, and, and inspired in contracting collapsing times. Yeah. You know, I was talking, when I was talking to uh, Patrick Farnsworth about this, he said he had had this conversation and uh, with someone else and, and this, this question would, would circulate of, well, if you feel that way, like we do, uh, why don't you just kill yourself, right? Like, this has got to be such a depressing state of mind, right? But no, it's actually not. It's, it's incredible. Not. It's, like you said, it's joyful. You, I, I'm finding, I'm rediscovering my love of where I, the, the land where I live, the yes. place where I live. Yeah. I'm, I'm cherishing my relationships in a whole, at a whole new level. Yeah. And the the I realized the despair, the 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 depression, it's not a product of facing the truth. It's a product of the denial. Right. Yes. By 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 holding on to this hope that we are something other than biological animals that are finite, you know, holding on to some dream of infinite progress, that actually is what creates the despair and Absolutely. the depression. And it's when you're on the other side of it that I understand I could not have, I would have said the same thing, but for people who are on this side of the, that despair and I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm going to cycle through periods of depression sure. still, but, but on the other side of that awareness is actually a more profound and, and more real love for the world and for the people that we share it with. It really is. Uh, it's amazing. I like a hundred percent agree. Before I ask you to share your story in more length or more depth, um, what about the language? Like, does post doom? What do you? What does that ring for you? If anything, what language do you tend to use for these crazy, contracting, challenging times? How do you talk about it? Well, uh, I, I like post doom. I like using deep adaptation when I talk about write about it. But uh, in the family. I kind of tongue in cheek say the end of the world, right? And it sounds very dramatic. Um, and I keep thinking, I need to stop saying that. And then I, but the more I think about it, I think, you know, th that is what I mean. It's, it's not the end of the planet. It's not the end of nature. But in the sense that, you know, we have a world, we make a world with uh, our communities and our ideas and our, 
you know, we make an order out of our chaos of our experience. And that I think is what's coming to an end. Yeah. You know, um, uh, when people have really traumatic experiences like the death of a loved one, sometimes we say their world came to an end, you know, like that, that, that centering, uh, organizing factor or person in their life. Um, and, and, but this is happening not on an individual level. I mean, it's happening to individuals, but it's, it's happening on a collective scale now, you know, a global scale now. So we're talking about an end of our world. Um, so, I, that's that's how that's how I've been talking about it with yeah. my family. Yeah. Well, I you know, I've 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 been trying to think of mythic or playful ways of languaging, um, you know, this for myself as well. And I I see myself kind of in the uh, in the lineage or in the in the uh, archetypal patterning of sort of a shamanic or perhaps chaplain of the post doom clan of the Tiatawaki tribe. Yeah, you know, and Tiatawaki being the end of the world as we know it. I'll have to remember that. Thank you, <laughs> Tiatawaki. So the heart of this particular podcast series has been me inviting uh, my various guests to speak about their journey, their story, uh, how they, what their worldview was like growing up. Most of us, not all, I've discovered, but most of us had an expectation of perpetual progress. We had an expectation that things would get better and better. You know, uh, and so, and that shifted. And for some of us, that was traumatic and dramatic. And there were significant downturns and times that we dealt with depression or came close to suicide or whatever. Um, so anything and everything that you'd like to share based on sort of what it was like for you growing up, how things shifted, what were any major books or events or resources? And then, yeah, what resources have helped you <laughs> keep for the most part, sane, sober, and inspired <laughs> in the midst of craziness. Depends who you ask, right? Um, okay. Uh, well, I was raised Mormon. It's uh, something that um, people sometimes find interesting. Is And I, I think it's relevant to this discussion because uh, Mormons believe in a principle called uh, eternal progression. And it's the idea that human beings will evolve and develop over millennia uh, you know, in the afterlife, and eventually, and they get mocked for this, but uh, become gods, right, or become godlike. And so this idea of infinite progress, you know, the pos infinite possibility of human potential uh, was baked into me from a very, very early yeah. age. And uh, I, I left the Mormon church when I was about 25. And um, quick, soon after, you know, considered myself a Christian for a while, and then I became an atheist, and then uh, discovered paganism. But um, so I, you know, I had to wrestle with that loss of a sense of, um, you know, future for mm. myself, and um, you know, the the embrace the idea that this life is finite for me, and. You know, that was a pro that was a process for me, and I I, I do remember one uh, experience in particular. I just had this; it was a mystical experience where I felt myself really connected to um, humanity, and I and I and I was able to let go of this kind of fear of death because I thought, well, humanity will carry on; will always, you know, progress and evolve and. I won't survive, but I'm a part of this 
greater be- thing, you know, this greater chain of it's it's the you know the big history, the the mm-hmm. universe story, right? And but but it was still very human centric, and um, so I I I was very proud of myself for like coming to terms with my own death, and then later after I came to believe that our civilization and possibly our species well eventually eventually no matter what our species has got to come to an end so coming to terms with that was like coming to terms with my own death all over again and now i'm doing it in front of my children who are in their teens and wrestling with their own angst and um having to deal with that was a struggle but i guess i'm jumping way ahead the Kind of the the moment the when my decline started was almost the moment when uh, I started becoming involved in activism. I was at that that rally at BP and was getting ready to be arrested, and uh, Bill McKibben from 350 had come to speak, and I'd never seen him before, and I was so excited. And near the end of his speech, he said, "We're not going to stop global climate change. It's too late for that." And I remember having this like double take moment, like what, what, what did he say? Did anybody else hear him say that? I'm getting ready to get arrested to go stop climate change, right? To save everything. I want to save the world. And I couldn't process it at that point. I was just like, I, I don't know. And so I put it on the back burner of my brain and I sat there for several years while I organized with 350 and busied myself. Now I look back and I realize I was busying myself, I think, largely in part to avoid facing that question, right? And um, which I, I, think is, I think is common. Yeah. And um, I can't recall what the, when the crack exactly opened, but I do remember the idea. It was, I had read something about energy return on investment and it was comparing the, you know, the, how much energy you can get after, um, the energy that it takes to produce it uh, out of renewable energy versus fossil fuels. And it's like, uh, you know, it's an order of magnitude different. Same thing for nuclear and all the other alternative energies that are being promoted. And that just hit me like, oh, wow. So we can't keep going on the way we're going on, even if we switch to renewable energy. And then I then I was looking back at years of activism you know and and thinking about our push you know always saying we just switch to new renewables switch to renewables and everything will be okay and it kind of that all kind of collapsed for me and uh, then it was a rabbit hole from that point on i you know i i quickly realized that um, it's not really even just a climate change issue even if climate change weren't an issue we were talking about um just some basic physical um principles of physics and we're coming to we're hitting numerous natural limits and we're um, we've basically been living off of this um, this glut of energy from that that took millions of hundreds of millions of years to create and it's it's now on its decline for all intents and purposes we're over the peak and um, so there <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're 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 headed toward um, how does uh, Jim Jim Bedell put it? It's a uh, uh, certain certain collapse uh, 
probable catastrophe and possible extinction. Uh, right. That's kind of how I, I've come to it. Yeah, that's, that's the piece that is so difficult for most of us to get our heads and especially our hearts and our guts around, which is, you know, based on the work of William Catton, we now understand this fundamental predicament that we are living within, which is that we actually live in a world where we have carrying capacity, ecological term, carrying capacity deficit. We don't have enough resources, enough energy to support anything near seven and a half, eight billion people. And yet we have shipped all over the world carrying capacity surplus expectations. So we're living in a carrying capacity deficit world. We have carrying capacity surplus expectations and institutions because those were largely founded here in North America, you know, um, uh, over the course of the last 300 years. And that mismatch is huge. And most of us, when we, when we, when we come to finally accept that we're looking at a future of less and less, right. not more and more, and that with that, in the wake of that, all other kinds of things contract and collapse as every previous contracting civilization, city-based human-centered civilization has, then it's a, that's the UG. That's the like, oh shit, uh, or oh my God, or that, that's what I'm meaning by doom is that emotional experience right. of, wow, we're fucked, <laughs> you know? And then ultimately, hopefully some of us at least get to, that's why I've started this, that why I'm doing this series is that for many of us on the other side of that, we come to find the gift. We realize that we, unsustainable civilizations are always at some point not sustained. And actually the quicker that Homo Colossus goes extinct, the better possibility there might be, assuming we don't have total nuclear meltdown of our power right. plants and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, the more likely or possible that the, uh, that some Homo sapiens, uh, especially those that still have an indigenous heart and mind, um, can survive. Right. Right. So, so as I'm realizing this, I'm starting to feel that, you know, that sinking feeling and the weight of it. Um, and, I recognized it. I'd read enough to recognize it as, you know, environmental or climate grief or whatever people are calling it. And then um, I had a personal tragedy in my life that it, it wasn't a death, but I kind of experienced it like a death. And um, the combination of those things just sent me into this darker place than I've ever been before. Yeah. And I'm actually, um, the, the more I've listened to people tell stories, that, uh, there's several people I've I've heard that have said that they realized this around the same time that they had a, a personal tragedy in their life, like the loss yeah. of a loved one or something. Um, Darja Mail, somebody that comes to mind. Yeah. And um, but anyway, so and there's a, there's a similarity there. You know, you're you're realizing uh, the limitations of everything, um, and yes. um, so that that was definitely a difficult time and that was recent that was like maybe a year year and a half ago and uh pushing through to um kind of a uh, more e a better equilibrium and a place like say post doom um beyond not hoping for not hoping that things are going to stay the same exactly not a hopeful uh frame of reference but not a despairing one either 
more just more realistic and and trying to think about okay this is this is the situation what's the what's the best way to respond um yeah, my sense of th that's sort of the, the basic spiritually mature perspective uh, in all traditions is accepting what's real, processing whatever feelings you have around that, and then moving out from that in a place of possibility. It's kind of like, okay, here's what's real. All right, now what's possible? And sort of being in that place. And it, it requires, because we're, we're a culture that like wants answers fix you know fix it now um and i it's my personality too i'm like i see a problem i want to fix it and um but this 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 place requires at least for me waiting and patience and being open and receptive and listening and it's hard to talk about that with my activist community who's very focused on action yeah, even if uh, people are sometimes very explicit that some action, even if completely ineffective, is better than no action, you know? Right. And um, I don't think that's true so much anymore. Well, Kanye uses a body metaphor, and I find it useful. She holds her arm down like this, slanted down. And she said, you know, if you're up here and you're an activist, and you believe, genuinely believe that if we just do the right things or get enough people to do the right things or vote the right way or, you know, whatever it may be, then this can be avoided, or at least some of this can be avoided, then you're going to really resent and resist people that are like way down here who are saying, oh, it's too late for that because you will actually find it problematic that they're saying that because then they're going to discourage people from being effective up here. It's, it just so right. makes sense of human nature. You know, it's interesting. Uh, my, uh, Connie and I both have noticed several times we've had to downshift what we can feel good about. Like it used to be, <laughs> well, at least some humans will survive. Exactly. And then over the last seven years, we've realized, oh, that one can't be taken for granted. Might, it might be that some humans survive for the next million or two million years before a super volcano or, you know, asteroid or something takes us out but we're not likely to last more than that and there's a very decent possibility that we don't last the century so right. i had to find something well okay at least trees connie's about assisting trees and migrating north and uh and 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 the truth of the matter is anything you can do on behalf of any life form beyond human is holy work it's sacred worth building topsoil moving trees assisting them in migrating faster uh, you know, poleward uh, right. faster than any other animal. And then we realized, damn, things could wig out so severely in terms of abrupt climate change and the Arctic and everything else. If things, you know, if you've got a situation where we've got six, seven degrees Celsius rise within a few years, you're looking at most trees not being able to survive. So then we had to downshift a little bit further. Well, okay, what can we confidently say based on billions of years of evolution are likely to make it no matter how severe. So we thought of tardigrades. Tardigrades are like, wow, they're damn near indestructible. Uh, so moss, ferns, and tardigrades. So we're really confident that no matter how bad <laughs> things get, they'll last. So, so we can feel good about that. So it's sort of a downshifting of expectations. One of the things I'd like to ask you is how do you hold sort of our science-based uh, epic of evolution, um, you know, uh, 
big green history or deep time or whatever you want to call it, but our common creation myth that unites us as all people, but also unites us with the larger body of life. How do, how do you think about the big picture um, in ways that uh, serve you in dealing with and coping with and living a life and being a father and that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so for a while, I, I still saw um, human beings as in some way exceptional. You know, when I, I had accepted that, yeah, there's not an afterlife and I'm going to come to an end. But I, I believe that human beings through ingenuity and uh, are, so we're so smart, right, that uh, we were going to, um, we're unique in some way. And so I, I, I embrace this idea of, you know, yes, we're, we're, we've evolved over millennia and uh, in, in over eons in, into human beings, but I still had this kind of very, very Mormon, uh, you know, idea of, of, of human beings still being human beings, eons from now. And um, this has, you know, realizing that civilizations come to an end and species come to an end, and that's just the natural order of things with or without climate change. Um, that's put a check on that for me and 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 now i realize yeah human beings are going to come to an end and you know eventually life on earth will come to an end as well it's all part of the the epic of evolution and death is as much a part of um that story as life and that's something that paganism really that drew me to paganism and something that actually helped me through uh my my depressive period was um there's this myth uh, for, for neo-pagans, it's called the myth, the myth of the dying God. And there's all kinds of stories about dying gods in various pagan religions and, and in Christianity is an example, where you know, this, uh, there's a God who's born so often at the winter solstice and, and, and then eventually dies and is reborn and usually dies you know, at the time when, um, for us it would be autumn, time and and then reborn again in the in the winter and uh or or sometimes in the spring depending on how you want to tell the story and the the message of the these myths uh is that death is part of life and and that we have to on some level embrace it and fighting against it denying it leads to uh us being out of harmony with nature and i think that's what our we it's just exactly what's happened to our society. We're a very death-denying society, right? And we, we look to technology and to our in, ingenuity and uh, all kinds of things to distract us from or defeat death in some way. And um, Ernest Becker says that basically civilization is a giant uh, death-denial project, right? It's a, it's a giant immortality project. And um, so, so reminding myself both through the stories and also through rituals of the importance of accepting the death part of this cycle has, has been helpful. So um, there's this one book that really, I think pushed me in this direction was, it was called the wizard and the prophet yeah, by Charles uh, Mann. Yeah. Uh huh. He talks about two visions of our relationship with the, with, with the universe or we're going to start with, with nature. And one is the, the prophet who says, no, uh, he says, we, we need to live within um, 
limits. Human beings need to learn within live, live within limits. That means reducing our population, consuming less. And the, the wizard says, no, 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 we, we can, you know, we're ingenious creatures. We can figure our way out, out of any limitation and limitations exist to be broken. And at the beginning and the end of the book, he, he's well, got- name, he, Go ahead and name the two figures that, uh, that, that was based on. Yeah, uh, Norman Borlaug and- um, Vote. Vote, okay. Yeah, and so, so those are the two like archetypal characters. And he goes through and gives, li uh, gives examples of both of these kinds of thinking in, in various realms and from uh, energy to how we manage our water and, and food, a big part of it's about food production. But at the beginning and the end of the book, he talks about Lynn Margulis, who's somebody who he knew personally, who presented a third vision. And it's because both the wizard and the prophet believe we can be saved if we just either, you know, invest in science or scale back. And she says, no, human beings are great and all, but we're essentially the same as bacteria. And bacteria will consume all the, if you put them in a Petri dish, they will consume all of the agar that's in the Petri dish until they hit the boundary, and then they will die in their own waste. And that's what most species do. There's a few exceptions, but most species will do this eventually. And for, so from her perspective, this overshoot is inevitable, right? In our case, it was greatly accelerated because we um, discovered fossil fuels. But um, it's, it's inevitable that we're going to do this. And that is really humbling because we're essentially no different than bacteria. Uh, that is truly humbling <laughs> for somebody who, who, who believed not only that... Um, you know, in the unlimited potential of human civilization, but at one time believed that we could become godlike, you know? Um, so, and, and, I, and I think that kind of our, our current, the popular worship of science and technology, uh, I'm a rationalist, I'm, uh, I'm my, even my religion is, try, I try to be science-based, but, but the worship of science and technology is is just another form of kind of this belief that we can become gods. Like we we don't have limits. So that's the definition of a god is a being that does not have limitations, right? Yeah, one of the things that I've made a, a avocational passion of mine in the last uh, seven years is studying not just the rise and fall of civilization and uh, you know, what are some of the common dynamics? And John Michael Greer has popularized people like Toynbee and Spengler and Vico and others that have really spent a lifetime, a career, you know, uh, focusing on that. What are the common dynamics of collapse and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But also uh, he's one of the more profound and articulate critiquers of the notion of progress, certainly human-centered progress. Um, one of the videos that I've created that I feel best about um, is a thing called sane versus insane progress and it's a little 22 minute pinker takedown video that uh, <laughs> you know really really shows that the idea that you can have human progress and everything that humans depend on is in precipitous freefall is you know this does not take rocket science to realize um that that's not sustainable that that's there, there's that's that's not going to end well um and so 
that's why the ecological worldview has become so foundational. I've said often in these programs that, you know, if, if you only read one more book the rest of your life, I encourage people to read William Catton's book, Overshoot. Yeah. Um, because he provides, in many ways, um, Vote was, was, uh, was really an early William Catton. He really articulated and spoke from this deeply ecological understanding of the way life actually works and the laws with which humans have to live within that context for us to sustain. That's why I also love Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith's work. So, You know, one of the problems with communicating this message is, I mean, you and I and most of the people who are writing and talking about this are coming from a very privileged background. We're living in, yes. in the Western world and, and we've lived very privileged lives. And we're saying, you know, and we're saying not, the rest of the world will never be able to live like this, you know, and, and, and we've been based, this, this country in the West has basically, uh, Catton talks about this, about, um, you know, we've basically been feeding off of the Southern Hemisphere and, and poorer countries for, yes. for centuries. And, and now we're turning around and saying, oh, and, and, and the promise was always, eventually, right. you'll catch up, right? right. And, and now the message of, you know, the, the doom community and the post-doom community is, no, we're not. We're all, we're all going to head downhill from here. Yeah, and the closer you are to subsistence level now, uh, you'll be able to make it better than those of us that are dependent upon vast supply Isn't that chains. true? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's but, true. Yeah. Well, anything that you'd like to say about human nature? I've got the, the way that we wrote the question. This is how does your sense of inborn human strengths and limitations, sort of our evolved nature and mismatched instincts, affect your interpretation of our societal and cultural deterioration. That is, do you have the sense that this dissent could have been avoided? Uh, or do you think that it was in some way inevitable? Or maybe you feel that such if only speculation is, is uh, irrelevant now. This is, this is my, my working theory. So I'm, I'm, I'm open to being persuaded otherwise. But I, I, I tend to think that human beings, like most other species, will always push up against their limits of um, the, their natural limits. And it, whether a species survives depends on how we react to that, that moment. The, you know, we, we, I think there's this tendency with indigenous peoples to idolize them. There's this, uh, what do we call it? myth, the myth of the ecologically noble savage there are there are societies uh, that have lived more sustainably than we have but i tend to think that they learned it the hard way that the ecological wisdom that indigenous people have today is the product of millennia and tens and hundreds, tens of millennia of of learning the hard way They're bumping up against those limits and finding out oh whoa we're, we're running out of food or we're running out of this thing. Yeah, that's what natural selection does is it winnows out unsuccessful strategies for survival and reproduction. And that goes for cultures too. Especially, in fact, it goes especially for cultures, for populations. It takes more than a generation to learn these lessons. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's coming up against those limits. Right. So I, I tend to find Teddy Goldsmith and, and uh, Rick Reese, Richard Adrian Reese, his writings on what is sustainable, certainly Paul Shepard, uh, his amazing work, 
um, and Dolores LaChapelle. I mean, these are, these are the major mentors for me of my ecological understanding. And exactly as you're saying, the hard-won ecological wisdom often right. came as a result of failures to live ecologically and then dealing with the consequences. Right. And that takes generations and generations. Right. But we have over 200 years about, um, you know, since we started really using fossil fuels in the way that we have, we've created this situation. And we, I don't think we've had time to learn the hard lesson. So I feel like we were given Prometheus fire or whatever, you know, this, this, this gift we were not ready to use and it's damned us. Uh, So because of human nature, I think we can learn. I think there's evidence that human beings can adapt and live sustainably, but I don't think we have time to given how rapidly we have um, screwed things up. So, yeah, my mythic way of holding this comes out of Avatar, the scene in Avatar where the Colonel talking about blowing up the uh, Tree of Souls, tree. Mm-hmm. that uh, it will create a, a a crater in their racial memory so deep that they will never go within 200 clicks of that ever again. I believe that the collapse of global industrialism will be the crater in our racial memory that should any human survive this bottleneck. And I think there's a pretty decent chance that at least pockets of humans will, but should any of us survive the collapse of industrialism will be mythologized in so many different ways, but they will all basically make the same point. We don't do that again. ever. Right. (laughs) And it will be the biggest learning and, you know, and the selection pressures of course will then be, not the energy, the most energy wasteful will succeed. No, the most energy conserving and, and groups of people, group selection. That's why I love David Sloan Wilson's work. But, the, you know, that the, the groups that are, that live ecologically and are kind and generous and loving and supportive of each other, a strong in-group, will outcompete other groups uh, who right. live less ecologically uh, or who have, you know, bitterness and fighting and, you know, whatever. So my, my, my hope is that this will be that crater. This will be the catastrophic failure of anthropocentrism. And at all costs, human centeredness will never be tried again because it's, it doesn't work. It, it self-destructs. I hope so. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a vision that wakes me up. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a preachable vision. Let's put it that way. And, and, and we can plant the seeds of that exactly. uh, in, in ways now. So yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, in winding this down, I just want to ask you, so what's your sense of what's beyond our control, but what may still be possible? Um, I went to go see the movie uh, Anthropocene a few months ago. It's very little narration, and it's just images mostly of the most massive, some of the most massive industrial projects on the planet and their waste. And I walked out of there thinking, there's no way we're going to stop this, right? It's just, it is out of our control. The, we no longer have our hands on the levers of this thing. It's, it's got a life of its own. Um, I am still ambivalent about discouraging people from whatever form of activism they're, they're involved in. So, you know, if people are fighting for renewable energy, if people, whatever you're doing, I, I think it's great. I think it's a possible, it could possibly knock some degrees off of that inevitable rise in global temperatures. So 
great. Um, but I think it's all ultimately doomed to failure. And so for me, I am turning my attention to more very small scale mm-hmm. things. Um, I'm interested in, this is going to sound pathetically um, small, but I mean, I, I have to get down to this level to, I, th- I think it's important to get down to this level. I'm, I'm, wor- I'm starting with rewilding my yard. You know, I'm, yes. I, I, want to, I want to know and understand the ground between, and have a relationship with the ground between, beneath my feet. That's not domineering. That's not dominating. And start from there and build out, you know, yes. uh, start with the relationships with the people that I'm closest to um, and investing. Cause I'll tell you when I was, when I was at my height of my activism, I, I was not given a lot of attention to my family. You know, it was other relationships were suffering in my drive to save the planet. Right. And um, so Honestly, I don't know what is possible at this point. You know, I, I want to grow more of my own food. I want to, and not so much so that we can survive the end times, but just because it's, I don't know, it feels like the right thing to do at this this point, you know, um, it's grow more communing of food. With the, uh, in my language, it's communing with the Holy of Holies. It's communing yes. with our material creator, sustainer, and end, nature, life. And I want to do it, and I want to do it in community. Yes, uh, exactly. There's a there's a somebody who lives near me uh, in Gary, Indiana, who she she and her husband bought a house, and they started regenerative agriculture over their whole plot, mm-hmm. and started a community food garden in their front yard. Well, it was awesome, but of course the city was like, no, 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 you can't be doing this. You know, it's, <laughs> it attracts rodents or whatever, and. And so she's had a legal battle over this thing. And she lives in a food desert. She's growing food for her neighbors. And uh, it's amazing. And I want, I want, she's a, she's a example, example for me and somebody yes. that I would hold up and, and follow. So um, I don't know where, where exactly this is going to lead. You know, I've st- I'm starting a, a grief group, uh, a couple grief groups actually in different parts, two parts of the County uh, where people, it's going to, and I'm intentionally, my, my, my instinct is like invite everybody, but I'm, I'm intentionally keeping those small, like five people because you can't have a conversation with like more than five people. It turns into some other dynamic. So I, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing this real small group and it goes against all my instincts because I keep, I, I still have that activist mentality of like, how's this going to save the world? It's not. Relax. Breathe. Yes. What matters is our relationships and the present and, you know, uh, but I am, I, I, I don't want to discourage people that are, that aren't there yet who, you know, I think you have to kind of work your way, Yes. work your way there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I fully align with everything you just said. And I too find that I, when I'm encouraging people to move through whatever stages of grief, whatever, uh, they need to move through and then ultimately come to the place, which is really my last question to you is in coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot, resource depletion, climate breakdown, et cetera. Have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? Like what opened up for you positively on the other side? What Paul Chaferka calls finding the gift. Well, 
I was really reticent to use this word before because it sounds so, I don't know, flighty, but it, love is just the thing that I keep coming back to. It's the, the love for the place where I am and the love for the people um, and the non-human people that, that I share this place with. And um, so I, I keep coming back to that. Um, and, you know, we, I told you I, uh, I'm an atheist and I, my, my religion I, is, I think, more rationalistic than, than people normally think of religion as. But I have rediscovered prayer. And I'm still, the, the, the rationalist in me is still a little embarrassed. I'm, I'm actually blushing right now the, to talk about this. But prayer for me has become the act of just acknowledging my limitations and opening up to possibility that things that I, that I can't control, right? Acknowledging what I can't control and opening it up to whatever the future is going to bring. And I, I don't know what I'm praying to, and I don't really care what I'm praying to. The act of praying, and and in, in its most simple form, in, in my darkest moments, my prayer is just help me. You know, just help. Um, who somebody said, there's like three basic prayers: help, thank you, um, wow, and something else. Something else, yeah. and. You know, in, in my in my most amazing spiritual moments, they've been, you know, these these wow and thank you. And in my darkest, and, and they were prayers, even though I don't believe in God uh, as, you know, a literal God. And in my darkest moments, it's just been help, please help. Yes. And I have felt something help me in those yes. moments. And I can rationalize and explain where it comes from or whatever, but it doesn't matter because it's working, you know? Well, I, I, I see prayer and define prayer as the posture and attitude of humility and gratitude. There you go. The posture and attitude of, because that's that to my mind, the humble stance, the stance of relating to primary reality as primary and that we are dependent. We are derivative. Yes. That is so fundamental. And I would actually challenge you you're not a fucking atheist. You're an eco-theist. No, <laughs> seriously, you okay. you're an eco-theist. For your ecos is divine. Right. The biosphere is divine. And yes, it's it not is. about believing in it. You don't believe in the ecosphere. You just live in right relationship to it or you suffer. So I'm offering you a new term. You're actually, the, the theist-atheist debate is still locked in this ecocidal understanding of religion as it's about beliefs. And I, yes. say, I, I do everything I can to hit both theism and atheism as hard as I can and say that that debate is precisely why we're in the mess we are. Because religion, if it's doing its job, is ensuring that the future is never compromised by the present. That's what Teddy Goldsmith actually defines religion as the control mechanism of stable, sustainable cultures. Wow. That which insists on limits. And uh, belief-based religions don't do that. And so I'm, oh, I'm neither a theist nor an atheist. I'm an eco-theist. Our religions aren't doing their job then. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, they, they really aren't. Um, that's in part what his entire book, The Stable Society, was about, was taking a look at the anthropological research over the last five, 600 years about what's the difference between sustainable, pro-future, life-centered, eco-centric societies, cultures, mm -hmm. and often one through hard, one <laughs> difficulties, as you said, 
and unsustainable cultures, anti-future cultures, human-centered cultures that tend to overshoot and and um, and experience a collapse. Um, right. So. Well, anything you'd like to say in bringing this to conclusion? Well, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. I, I love talking to you and I love the work you're doing. So this is a, a real honor for me. Cool. Well, it's an honor for me too, brother. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.